You are listening to Media and the Madam. This is Amory Sky. Welcome to another episode. Since it is Women's History Month, I wanted to go back and revisit one of our first conversations on Media and the Madams with Dr. Janica Bowman Lewis, who is an associate professor of English and the founding director of the Women and Gender Studies Department at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And to talk about why the stories of Black folks matter, why do the stories of Black women matter, and what did we learn as our childhood and through adulthood about the stories of our ancestors and how we can relearn to tell those stories to future generations? I hope you take something away from this episode and just enjoy our conversation and spend time this year, and especially since the pandemic, really listening to the stories of your ancestors and how they can influence you to be the best person you can be. Thanks, and hope you enjoy. All right, hi, Dr. Lewis. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, glad to be here. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, My name is Janica Bowman Lewis. I'm Associate Professor of English at UNC Charlotte, and I also direct Women's and Gender Studies there, in addition to being the Interim Director of the Center for the Study of the New South, which is at UNC Charlotte. Um, I'm a writer, I'm a children's book author, um, and also write on Black women and freedom narratives. That was um, my last academic book, 2017, and uh, right now I'm currently researching Black girlhood narratives. And I also have a 10-year-old son and a 7-year-old daughter, and um, we're here in Concord with my husband as well. So that's me. Oh, I'm from Augusta, Georgia. I have to, you know, shout out the hometown um, as well. Of course, of course. Um, You did say that you have been working on genealogy and telling the narrative of Black women in your family. So can you talk a little bit about what to expect when you are looking up your genealogy and how to react to those stories that you've you just heard about, but that person deceased and what that means for your family's um, story going forward? That's a great question. Um, so I grew up, as many of us did, here in family stories. Uh, I was, you know, grew up in Georgia. My paternal grandmother, Vanilla Bowman, um, was very active in raising me and my three siblings. And she was an educator, um, and started a daycare center uh, before she died. And so I always grew up kind of knowing her story. Um, her you know, family was a sharecropping family in South Georgia. Then she, um, when she was an adult and had my dad and my aunt, but my grandfather was overseas in the military and she decided she was gonna go to college. And so she went to Albany State College, now Albany State University. And she was um, 
working as a waitress. She was raising my dad and my aunt. Um, and she also was like trying to let them know what was going on in terms of civil rights. So when Dr. King came to Albany in 1961, and he said it was one of the worst cities he had been in, in terms of the hatred and the racism, my grandmother walked my dad and my aunt to hear him. So she wouldn't let them ride the buses because the buses were segregated. She was like, we'll just walk or we'll get rides wherever you know we're going. And she didn't have a car. And so um, actually my last children's book, Dr. King is Tired Too, is my dad's memory. And he and I co-wrote the book. He wrote the story and I um, helped turn it into a book about walking with his mom um, to hear Dr. King. And he's like, all I really wanted was a car. Was Dr. King gonna help us get a car so we wouldn't have to walk in everywhere? And so you asked about genealogy. My desire to learn more about my family came from hearing these stories. And then the same on my mom's side, my, my grandmother, Magnolia Weaver, who's still alive, um, was an entrepreneur. She worked um, for a company called General Time in Athens and she would bake on the side. Then she worked for the Athens Country Club and she would bake and people would come like just for her pies. And as an older adult, she's like, I wanna start my own business. And so she started her own business, Magnolia's Bake Shop and did that until she retired. And so knowing my grandmother's stories and then um, I was fortunate to know my maternal grandmother's mother, Ophelia, and you know, just down the line um, on that side, just wanting to know more about my family got me involved in genealogy. So there's an organization, um, the African American Historical and Genealogical Society, um, and uh, I have gotten involved with them recently in Charlotte. And they're they're international, but the the Charlotte um, branch or chapter. And one member of that uh, branch has traced, I think, twelve thousand of her relatives. And so, um, oh, wow. she's, yeah, she's used DNA um, and Ancestry.com. And so I'm like, you know, with my little, you know, four or five here, four or five there, just beginning. But what I've been able to do with that organization is just really get into the importance of telling our stories. And sometimes we think, oh, well, if we don't have a famous person in our family, like, it's not important. But it's like every story, like, I remember specific meals with my grandmother where other relatives would be there. And so now it's like, all right, who was that relative? How are they related to us? Um, you know, who were their parents? Who were their parents and how far can you go? And so I'll say in terms of genealogy, I'm still fairly early in terms of documenting, but I've gotten a lot more information about how to get those details. So like looking at the census, for example, um, I found my paternal grandfather, um, the census from when he was a child. And so then I'm able to go and ask my dad, well, who was this person? Cause they weren't related. And it was like, you know, a lot of black families had a cousin or somebody boarding with them. And so it's even differentiating, okay, who lived in the house that was related to us versus, you know, who was staying there, who was helping raise whose kids. Cause that happened a lot where, you know, other family members are raising, um, raising children that aren't theirs to help support the family. And so, Long story short, I love the stories, but also just encouraging people, you know, to see the significance of the stories in their families too. I guess follow up with that, I would ask when, since you are an expert on black feminist theory more so, how do you explain the struggle of black women, especially with hearing those stories um, from, like you said, finding out your grandparents, 
looking at the census in the early 1900s to now. What is the struggle of black women at the heart of it and how to effectively tell their stories? Hmm. So the struggles are different. Um, and I actually had a, a conversation um, with one of my colleagues or coworkers recently. How do you differentiate between just telling the struggles and telling the whole story? Um, and the struggles are a big part of that, especially as we think about you know, systematic racism and how institutions treated black people, but you know, black women specifically, um, and how to tell those stories. So I, um, one thing we can do in terms of like black feminism is look for the stories that represent like the, the breadth and the depth of who we are. So there's not gonna be one single story for black women. I mean, even when we're thinking about um, family members who were um, domestic uh, workers or who were you know, educators or, I mean, all, all different types of types of um, careers. So um, I guess to answer that question, look for multiple stories that represent like all of, um, you know, one story is not gonna say all of who we are, but also you mentioned resilience. And I think resilience is a big part of um, who we are as black women. But the other part of that is what are the harms that are continuously perpetrated? And I find sometimes the narrative is that like, oh, we're resilient, like we'll get through it, we'll get over it. But it's like, also, how can we stop the harms? How can we stop the institutional oppression or you know, the wage gap or the, you know, all of the things that um, influence black women? And we do what we do like in spite of that or despite that and not, you know, oh, we just resilient, we're good. How do you tell the story of black women from civil rights, especially to now, because I think that starting in civil rights, it had more of a behind the scenes role mm -hmm. until pushing it to now that they have more leadership roles and how are people okay with that? Because black women are the most educated minority, really almost in the mm -hmm. US at this point. And mm -hmm. so how are we, be, before, you know, I guess look at how, like people may view us, how are we going to be okay with being in those leadership roles and not having the same fear of oppression of the past? Hmm. So um, you mentioned the civil rights movement and one thing we know um, now and we knew it then was that black women had active roles in the movements. They just were not uh, put at the front. So you had, you know, alongside, you know, they say, you know, beside every, um, good man is a good woman. And so not only those who were married, but also um, those who were student activists. So when you look at the Student Nonviolent um, Coordinating Committee, um, someone like Diane Nash, what was going on at Fisk. And so you had these women who were like leading <laughs> the movement, but then when it's time to be on the stage, they were excluded for the most part. And so we can, can look specifically at um, which women's voices did we not hear? And then we get into you know, the Black Power Movement and the same thing. Now we have um, more narratives of uh, Black women writing. So like Elaine Brown, um, who wrote Taste of Power was talking about how women's roles were limited, but they're still there. They're doing the planning, they're doing all this, but again, whose stories are featured? And so there's this work we have to do um, of recovering narratives of leadership, but also looking at the barriers to leadership. Like who said, oh, we're not gonna put the black woman story up front. And so now, I mean, as we think about um, 
like Black Lives Matter and the movement for um, Black Lives, looking at um, the women's voices who are circulating, who maybe would not have been heard before, or um, with you know Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi, this Black queer women-led movement um, gets looked at um, not necessarily as you know who are the leaders when that's that's what we've been doing. Like we've been there, we you know been doing that work. Um, so I think the work that has to be done now is actually looking at where Black women leaders were um, and are and how out of the way so you can really see those narratives. And I like to do it by looking at um, individual stories. So I'm a, a literature scholar. So I look at a lot of memoirs and narratives um, and essays and speeches, um, but we can find those stories in different ways. It's always for who you see, who are you not seeing and why. So really being intentional about uncovering those stories. And something that's been cool for me um, as a parent and as an educator is looking at different ways that stories are told. So uh, for example, recently I um, started collecting books of uh, like black history and um, seeing like wh who's in the books, right? Who's being taught about. And there's not just one book <laughs> that has, you know, everybody in it. And so um, recently I've been focusing on um, black women in STEM and, um, you know, looking at who's featured, what names um, are, am I not as familiar with and how can I then, you know, look more into their stories. So it's, it's doing that work uh, too. I totally agree. Um, when you said Diane Hash, I was, that was who I should <laughs> give an example of, of course, but um, I think, like you said, telling those stories and everything's not in one book. Mm -hmm. And I'm just somebody who, ever since I was a kid, I love Black history. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't always do Black History Month, so he go to certain programs and yeah. I could expand my knowledge. And then going to Spelman just made it to a whole nother. African American studies wasn't my major. My friends were like, if there's a Black history program, Amanda will go. If it's on the other side of Atlanta, I'm going, she's going, yeah. even if it's by herself. And you how do you infuse it into like everything? Like, I mean, you know, black women in math, <laughs> black women in engineering, black women sociologists. Um, and that's actually to me, the goal of black history, not to say like, okay, we're just gonna look at this piece during this time. But even, you know, when Carter G. Woodson started uh, Negro History Week, his goal was to have it infused like all through the year in every aspect of life. And so, um, I love that you know you are a sociologist as well because you're thinking about how is Black history woven you know through society. So that's that's the goal to have it everywhere. Definitely the goal. And with McDonald's 365 Black campaign, it's more so it is infused. African Americans are infused into everyday life. So that does uh, proceed my next question of when you have written some of your pieces on the medium you have talked about centering black stories so mm -hmm. when you do center black stories what are the most expansive themes that you should be pulling from them i know that we're saying that black is in everything in every field in mm -hmm. every story tell but how do you center those stories so they they can sometimes translate so that's a great question. And you mentioned something like McDonald's 365 and I'll even add like um, the Target campaign with the, the, all the black history shirts and stuff like that. Those are examples of where our history is commercialized, but they, you know, we know the stories have always been there. And so um, 
what's interesting is who benefits from that translation. And so, you know, and also how can we keep um, stories of black history to benefit black communities? And so I'm always looking like, okay, what, what gives back? What goes back from that? Um, and sadly, sometimes we look or wait for those stories to be validated before we're, we like claim them or they're ours, but you know, looking the other way, those are our stories. We are the center. We somebody um said on a talk the other day, I can't think of anything that black people didn't do first. And so shifting that mentality, um, at least for me, thinking, how have we always been the center? Like y'all didn't discover our stories, <laughs> you know, McDonald's didn't discover us, Target didn't discover us. But now that you are centering our stories, how then um does that benefit or that support come black back to black communities? So it's, you know, how does it come full circle from the value we always knew um, was here? I guess the only, I guess, takeaway I can say is that circling back is that, for example, Target's current campaign, that you are featuring black artists who have done mm-hmm. the portraits or who have created the t-shirts in that nature. So it is coming mm-hmm. back. It's not just, it is commercialized, mm-hmm. but it's putting black entrepreneurs on display a little bit better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Giving and them then a McDonald's, platform. Right. And then I would say as far as McDonald's campaign, being a sponsor for events and for events that benefit mm-hmm. black neighborhoods and black community is what their goal is. Mm-hmm. We're looking with corporate sponsors. Is that when I go, because I've been to Essence before and just familiar with Essence brand, is who sponsors Essence, which is the largest um, music festival in the country. Mm-hmm. Even though people think it's Coachella or something, it's not. Uh, it's the largest. Time partnership, time uh, Viacom partnerships, even. How are those partnerships? And I'm not, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying making sure that when companies are highlighting or featuring that 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 those dollars are there for all the dollars that you know a company is making you know how does that circle back around and and i think that is a question especially now as more companies are starting to you know feature um, black art and culture how does that become an essential part of who those companies are i think last i think last year scared companies and corporations and that's why black history month is bigger than ever this year Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and even that idea of not just a month so like abc is doing um not just a month and so i'm like it unfortunately takes took tragedy um for that to happen and i now i know uh, now um companies need to be um intentional about um, their messaging and their support. And I, um, I consult um, with companies, I use stories to talk about um, basically how they could do better. <laughs> and, and part of that message is you shouldn't just have white people telling the stories of black people in your company. If there are no black people to tell their own stories, that's the problem, right? It's not just center black stories, but or, you know, actually create equitable conditions for Black people to be at, at your company. So back to storytelling, um, that that continues, that that continues. So with these campaigns, et cetera, like how can we continue to give 
um, Black authors, Black artists, um, Black entrepreneurs, a platform um, that really sustains those histories too. Definitely. One thing that I discovered too, we talked about before, when you do start to look at your genealogy mm-hmm. and I'm at the stage right now where I'm pulling death certificates mm-hmm. as well. How do you make yourself okay with certain situations that you feel like you've been lied to, except you're an adult and you can research it for yourself now. Mm-hmm. And some of those things on paper are just a dramatic difference from the stories. The, the stories have been glamorized yeah. and the facts are the facts, birth dates and um, ages of, giving birth and all that tell a different story this mm-hmm. actually sometimes has been in my experience recently more tragic how are you okay with that and are you going to sugarcoat it for your future generations mm. so what you bring up also is what is needed to um look at those stories as being what they are. A lot of times when we've been told a different story, it's because that story got started so not to you know, perpetrate or cause harm, but also lying <laughs> perpetrates and causes harm too. So on one hand, sometimes people just know the story they're told. And as you say, like going to those, um, those pieces of documentation gives a fuller sense um, of the story in a, in a, lo- a lot of um, cases. Um, But also, I think telling the truth, um, even if it is painful, um, gives a a realer sense of who we are. And so um, this isn't genealogy based, but even, you know, last year when um, the murder of George Floyd was on TV, I have, you know, two young kids, we're watching the morning news and we have that conversation, like, this is what happened. This is what, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it because this is what you see, you know, on live TV. And this is the history of how that has happened, you know, in our country. Um, I think when we look at our family narrative, this is what happened, and this is the impact on us. And how do we make sure that, you know, it doesn't continue to happen? What can we do? And what can we do to support each other too? Um, Because that's another piece, especially with, you know, Black family stories. A lot of times when they're more painful, we don't talk about them, but then that doesn't give us room for support and healing. And I think we can't just jump to the healing and be like, oh, that happened, you know, however many years ago. But if it still impacts us, um, you know, how do we find support? And mental health is something that is not talked about as we a lot as we think about trauma narratives, but I think it's it's definitely important to talk about where mental wellness comes from as we deal with with painful stories. Just the coping factor with it, um, mm-hmm. and also talking about since I'm in public health, talking about your family's health history plays mm-hmm. a role too. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my roles. Uh, I'm an instructor and I always make my students do their family history. Mm-hmm. And some of them are aware. I would just say that my white students are usually more aware of their family history than the black students are. Mm-hmm. Like one of my, my white students knew that for a fact that after you turn um, age 18, there's a chance of you having skin cancer. Mm-hmm. And that from her grandmother down to her cousins, 
a certain age, you have to be tested. You need to go back every two to three years to be retested. And where is it more likely to happen at? Um, whether it's on your face, your arms, and that of that nature. Mm-hmm. And my black son is like, we don't talk about that. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, maybe you should because maybe you'll realize that there is a mental health um, issue in your family. The schizophrenia has been covered up. And when somebody does show signs, some people have been put away. But then other people have just been medicated for so long that mm-hmm. that's the only person that you know. You didn't know that when they turned 21, they had to be, you know, hospitalized mm-hmm. to the point of where they are now. And they're still dealing with it. And something like the pandemic bought out the fact that some of those people have been dealing with these issues for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And even histories of addiction and drug use, which are present in a lot of families, and we don't talk about them. Or if we talk about them, we talk about the addiction as the root when instead it's an effect and we hadn't gotten to the root. And so... I mean, we have cases like that, but then also when someone isn't diagnosed, um, you know, we have symptoms that present for different things, but we don't have a diagnosis. And then how do we, you know, deal with that health history when to your point, we don't know, or it's just, you know, so-and-so was addicted, but, you know, we don't, we don't pass that on, right? We don't say there is this history um, and, you know, what are the causes? So having those conversations, I love that, you know, you make it a public health issue, like thinking about the need for, you know, genealogy as a public health issue is, I mean, is, is brilliant <laughs> because a lot of what has been interrupted in our stories is, you know, the fullness of who we are. So um, that's included in health. And, even though um, I, I'm definitely not like a scientist or my, my, uh, both of my parents were in medicine. My mom was a nurse and my dad is a cardiologist. And so um, my dad, um, his mother encouraged him to go into medicine and you know, he's really been concerned with making sure um, communities are healthy. So, you know, how can we, you know, improve our uh, lives with heart health? How can we, you know, um, exercise, et cetera. And we have this narrative of black people as being unhealthy, but a lot of times our circumstances keep us from pursuing full health. So what can we do in terms of community support to to promote greater health? And that's one, another project I've worked on in the past is making sure with working with, um, local minority churches as a means of changing health disparities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, you have to just find a platform of which to reach community. And that was one of them. Um, I've always, of course, known about other ones starting early. So working with K through 12 to ensure their health as well. Mm-hmm. Churches, community centers, schools. Absolutely. To their, you know, families and say, we learned such and such about our bodies. You know, what are, you know, how do we do this? What do we do? Or my seven-year-old be like, we gotta exercise all through the you know pandemic. And she was missing PE. She was like, come on, we gotta exercise. We gotta jump rope. We gotta, you know, I was like, okay, we'll go outside. So um, you're absolutely right. So going forward, what's the key thing to telling our stories um and writing down their stories? So so future generations will see it, not just hear it, um, per se. And especially, I'll just give an example. My generation is saying that some of us have kids, some of us, a lot of us don't have kids yet, but we know that in history books, 
30 years from now that we'll be correcting our kids on what happened on January 6th mm-hmm. and saying that's not what happened. It wasn't like, oh, that's not what happened. So how are we to do that on our own for our own families? We have to write our stories so our stories don't get told for us. And that's a good example. Whoever, um, you know, gets the ability to tell what happened on January 6th, that's the story that's going to go on. But if we're all writing at any given moment about where we were, what our families were doing, how we felt, what our, you know, anxieties were, um, those stories are part of the record too. So I, you know, tell people going forth, your story doesn't have to look a particular way. It could be a poem, it could be a journal. It can be a children's book. It can be, you know, an essay. Um, but it's important for us to all tell our stories so we are part of that record of American history. Um, if not, our stories get told for us and they get misrepresented. Um, and you know, that's 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 the danger. Or even they get erased. So when we have, you know, the more stories we have, the more we can say, like, you can't erase all of it. You know, you 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 have to look at um, the fullness of representation, and that includes um, our stories as well. And that was just the inspiration for my podcast was that telling stories. And I just a couple years ago, I was dealing with the health issue, and my god grandmother was dealing with the health issue as well. So I couldn't leave. She couldn't leave the house. So I would go over to her house and sit with mm-hmm. her. And during that summer, she started telling me her story more. Mm-hmm. And then when she uh, succumbed to COVID in December, we found out what her real age was because she was just this, I'm a lady. I don't tell my age. Mm-hmm. And she was 99. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she would have been 100 this year. But um, her telling me that she went to college and she went to boarding school mm-hmm. in the 30s and 40s. Do you know where she went to boarding school? She went to the Palmer Institute. Okay. Okay. So in that's Alamance County, right? Yep. Yeah, right up. I've, I've been there. Uh, but uh, black boarding schools um, and Charlotte Hawkins Brown um, wrote, uh, what is it? What to do, say, and where. And so that's another place to look at those stories. And talking to her mm-hmm. about, I was like, you do realize your story is a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. That wasn't typical. And knowing that her grandparents who were born um, right after slavery were mm-hmm. entrepreneurs and they owned a lot of their sector of their part of the black part of town. Mm-hmm. And her dad had a, owned a barbershop. I said, you think I'm just saying your story is unique and you're telling me stuff how when you grew up in the 20s and 30s and so when you graduated college in the 40s and when your husband when he proposed to her their senior year of college at North Carolina Central, she told him that you're going to war. So I don't know if you're going to die or not. So you can propose again when you get back. Oh, wow. And she went and got her master's while he went to uh, World War II. Are you writing that story? I have to do this because I have mm-hmm. to tell her story, which I can do still with my god sister. And we can talk about her story more so. But just seeing it, talking to her and understanding that I was like your story is really unique mm-hmm. um and being in, and then moving from Durham to Charlotte and she started um she along with two or three other African-American librarians making sure that children in West Charlotte had books mm-hmm. and they had new books which was different this mm-hmm. is 
in the 60s. Yeah. And um, that's their first story. Late 50s. Yeah. And so one of those librarians is who um, the Bay's for library here in Charlotte is named after. So trust me, hearing those type of stories, girls are going forward and knowing that we have a role here. The thing I've gotten from my dad is um, he's a dentist. So try to connecting with patients and on the West side, we, he always asks, where'd you go to high school at? Mm-hmm. They went to second ward. Okay. Well, you must live connecting people and they're more comfortable telling you a little bit more since you know, like, oh, you know about Brooklyn. You know about this part of Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. You know about where the black churches are there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same in any city. Um, My parents are from Mississippi. So knowing those stories, um, growing up, they moved to Charlotte a year before I was born. So Mm -hmm. uh, growing up in Charlotte and going back and forth in the summertime, I just feel like even though I was going 30 years post in time, when I go to Mississippi, it's still important to sit with those people whether mm-hmm. their co-host this podcast is telling the story of somebody's great grandma who's on her deathbed who's 95 mm-hmm. it's important as telling the same story as um a current physician who's 35. everybody's mm-hmm. story is important for us going forward and understanding everybody played a role educated or not absolutely absolutely and so your story is mississippi <laughs> your story is charlotte your story is you know Atlanta and then you know wherever you go from there and that's another point to take our stories with us even as you were telling her story I'm like oh I've you know I've done research into uh, black boarding schools that's its own story um Charlotte and librarians and uh, providing books for you know children that's its own story that's there's a whole narrative of black librarians and educators and so you know thinking about again, like not just what is the story, but like what are the pieces of the story and how they provide a landscape for learning more about African-American life. And as you mentioned, you know, black entrepreneurship in your family. I mean, medicine and and black families, all of them, you know, stories that, that um, we need to know and talk more about. And wrapping up, what is your advice for telling everyone's story and just for being um, their own scholar? Mm. Um, my advice is to know that you know your story better than anybody else. And so um, we talked about everybody having a story, but I think sometimes it takes more courage and motivation to actually, you know, tell your story. And, you know, my advice is to tell it anyway. Tell it if it's just for you. Tell it if it's just for your your mother or your father or your family. Um, that value of that story um, extends beyond who we are. It'll be whoever reads it, whoever accesses it, whoever looks for um, information on your family. So do it, <laughs> tell it, <laughs> write it, um, and also share it. That's the other piece. Hope that you enjoyed Dr. Lewis's interview as much as I did and had something to take away from it. Also as well, after I interviewed Dr. Lewis, I was able to dig into my genealogy just a little bit more because at the time last year, I was working on a huge genealogy project for my extended family. I did one side. It ended up being looking into both, but I was able to better have conversations with my elders and to ask them better questions to understand census reports, but also the hearsay in some stories and have more clarity to rewriting those stories with details that were missing previously. But again, I hope you took something away. I hope you all have a great 
um, week. Thanks for listening. One love, Amory Sky.